Well, last Sunday, December 1st, we began our Advent sermon series, and we looked at a sermon entitled, uh, Joy to the World. We gave props to the writer of that phrase, that song, Isaac Watts. In 1419, he penned that, had no idea it would be a Christmas song, had no idea it would be the greatest Christian hymn uh, ever published, the greatest Christian hymn the world has ever known. And we looked at joy from Luke 2, uh, good news of great joy for all the people. And at Fondren Church, we want to keep that in front of us every chance we gather for worship this is for all people no fine print no asterisks at the bottom no exclusions good news of great joy for all people doesn't it give you joy to see and hear these children sing isn't that great you know the bible says make a joyful noise it doesn't say have a joyful feeling it says, make a joyful noise. And think about this. Uh, I'm borrowing this from a great writer, but uh, he talked about a, a train, a caboose. Uh, at the beginning is, fa- is fact, and in the middle of that is, is it's faith. And at the end of that, the caboose is the feeling. And sometimes I can't conjure up the feeling of joy. Anybody with me? I can't just sit there and go, I'm going to have the feelings of joy. But when we make a joyful noise and we begin to sing and we listen to kids sing, and one of my boys over here was just yelling at some point, man. And I said, like, that's my style. Like, be loud, be heard. Don't go unnoticed, right? Just make a joyful noise. And what I find is sometimes when I start singing or yelling or whatever about the facts of what are, what's true, that what God says is true, then my faith begins to align with the fact of what God says is true. And then guess what? The feelings will often follow. What what kind of life are you going to have if you just try to have a joyful feeling all the time and you try to conjure up those those feelings? It's going to be futile. It's not going to work all the time. Some of you are already melancholy, right? But for even the optimists, for even the Enneagram 7s, for even the joyful otters, It can be difficult. So the joyful noise, fact of what's true. Today, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Not Luke 2, but Matthew 2. We're going to also, in our Advent series, stay focused on this Christmas story. And our sermon today is entitled, Our Finest Gifts. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 1 through 11. Okay, Matthew 2, 1 through 11. Would you join me if you have a Bible open in front of you or turning there? We're going to read it aloud together. Oftentimes, I'm just the only one reading it, and you're listening to me or sleeping while I'm reading it. So I want you to read with me. Now, you know the, you know this, right? Some of you really love and value congregational singing, congregational reading, and we'll have an opportunity to do that in just a second. But, uh, you know, when you're reading together, you, you read a little slower, don't you? So we'll need to read a little slower. I'm talking to myself because my brain goes fast. My tongue goes fast. I'm just preaching to me. Let's read this together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah." For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly 
and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Good job, most of you. Way to go. I struggled a little bit myself. Isn't it beautiful to read the word together? Now, in this story, uh, I grew up pronouncing it magi or the wise men. They, uh, the Greek word there is magos, and it's translated to our word magic. So these, these guys who traveled from the east uh, to bless, to worship, to give their offerings to the king, this child king, they were probably Persians from Babylon, or some believe they were of the priestly order of the Medes, uh, who were schooled in science and medicine and philosophy. The, this word that we get, um, the Magi, that we get it from, it has to do with looking at the stars. And some believe they were just simply star searchers. Some believe that there was some sorcery uh, traced back to Daniel chapter 2, if anybody wants to do some in-depth study there. But sorcerers who uh, magic was their, was their way. And isn't it crazy to think that a long time ago, people actually believed in astrological things. They would like direct their lives based on the stars. Isn't that crazy to think how primitive those people were and now we're advanced and so educated. But here's the thing that I want you to know, despite what some differences maybe from historians and scholars, whether they were Persians from Babylon or of the priestly tribe of the Medes, they were foreigners, they were outsiders, they were pagans. And so Matthew early on, just as Luke did, Dr. Luke, the physician in Luke 2, he lets us know that it's good news of great joy for all people. Matthew is letting us know from these men who came, who traveled so far, he's letting us know that the gospel is for everyone. In that world, it would be Jew and Gentile. In our world, we would simply say for everybody. Revelation 7 tells us about heaven. It's going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians 4, but it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you see the ark of the universe. You see the story, the beautiful narrative of Jesus Christ coming and the expansion of it. And it is for everyone, the foreigners, the outsiders, and for the pagans. And in this story, there is a king, King Herod. Somewhere 34 to 4, 37 to 4 BC was his life. It was his reign. He was half Jew, half Gentile, hated by most Jews, And he was set up in power by the Roman Empire. He was like kings of his day. He built cities. He ruled over armies. But he was a bloodthirsty tyrant. He killed his wife. If he was alive today, it would be a great story for Friday night's Dateline NBC. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his three sons. And this was the king who reigned. And these men, they came and they offered a gift. And the first thing that I want you to learn from this story today, that in the Bible, worship always involves giving. In the Bible, worship 
always involves giving. Don't you love it when people give? Aren't you blessed when people do give? Uh, yesterday, I got to do some landscaping with some guys uh, who showed up, and only one of them got paid a little bit. He did the church discount, and some of us showed up. I had some friends show up just to offer their labor of love, just to give their time. If the sermon is not good today, just know I did some landscaping most of the day, all right? So if, if I struggle, just turn to the person next to you and say, he's a good landscaper. Not a good preacher necessarily. But I love to see people give. And just a few of us were out front here doing some landscape. But I saw so many showing up to deliver trees that so many more had shown up on Wednesday night to decorate, to give to families in our neighborhoods over here to bless them. People that wouldn't necessarily have trees or have gifts under their tree. And I love to see people give. In the Bible, worship always involves an act of giving. Now, when you think of worship, what do you think of? You may think of this, right? You've come to worship. Hey, you're going to worship today. Let's go to Fondren today. The kids are singing. You think of worship. We think of singing. We think of music songs. We think of preaching. We think of a, a religious event that you attend. That's it's good. But worship, you can worship anytime, anywhere. You can worship at the office. You can worship in conversation with friends. You can worship in traffic. Some of you don't worship in traffic, but you can. I'm just letting you know, you can worship. It's an alternative. There are special places. It tells us in scripture, in the New Testament, that Jesus went to the temple regularly, as was his custom. Jesus was bought in that there are special places that we go and we worship. But we can worship anytime and anywhere and what we miss in our day is the centrality of giving. When people are gathered, and no matter how we come in the room, no matter how the assembly starts, we all have an opportunity to think, God, are you good? God, here are my fears. God, here are my hopes and dreams and aspirations. Here's where you have provided for me. God, here's where I feel like you have forgotten about me. Oh God, will you provide? But worship is a response to God. And we see in this Christmas story, we see people responding to God. But what they believed is true and would be true. The word Advent is Latin for toward the coming. Something is coming, Emmanuel, God with us. In the Bible, worship always involves giving. Don't miss that. The first family, Cain and Abel, Abraham, the Israelites, they would set up altars and offer sacrifices. We see that throughout the story of God leading his people. And it's true in New Testament times when the people of God gathered regularly, they would take up a collection to help the poor to plant new churches. And oh, by the way, to pay the preacher. I thought I would just say that because that's what the Bible says. It's in there. But giving, worship, always involves, always involves an act of giving. If we could put this quote on the screen, this thought that I want to put in front of you today, uh, back up if we have that idea about God or Christmas at the heart of the Christmas story. Here we go. At the very heart of the Christmas story is a picture of what God can do when we give as an act of worship. At the very heart of the Christmas story is a picture of what God can do when we give as an act of worship. Long ago, it was customary in a polytheistic society for people to give to the gods. So think about that. I've just asserted today that in the Bible, worship always involves an act of giving, but why? In the ancient Near East, they gave to bribe and buy off the gods. Prosperity, fertility, rain, 
the next thing that they needed. And so the idea there was God's, the God's, the God of, the God of this, the God of that was an impatient God, was a demanding God, was a, a, a bloodthirsty God, a God requiring these sacrifices. So they, they would come and they would give and it was, it was customary in every, every culture to give to bribe the gods. One writer puts it this way, John Walton the gods, that's the smaller g, gods in the ancient world were not the objects of enthusiastic pursuit. People sought the gods for protection, assistance, not relationship. You couldn't love these gods and these gods didn't love you. We see the evolution of mankind. Don't you appreciate Jesus and what he's done to bring us to where we are today? But you see this, every every. Let's get some history here. Every culture and every nation saw the gods this way except one. Any guesses? The little nation of former slaves and exiles called Israel who were following a god they called Yahweh. And they believed that you could have relationship with this god. They believed that at the heart of this god is love And the heart of this God is one who gives. In fact, their writers, I believe, through the inspiration of God, penned it many, many times over that this God is not easily angered. He abounds in loving kindness and he is a giver and he desires to have relationship with us. And so, giving to Yahweh is different. It's a relationship. It's a response. So I want to look today at this story that we all read aloud together to quickly extract four truths when it comes to worship as an act of giving. The first is this. These folks, they gave intentionally. They had a plan. It says in verse 2, before, in verse 2 it says, uh, no, let's go back to just that. Yeah. yeah. They gave intentionally. We have come to worship. They asked the question in verse 2 before that, where is he? They wanted to know. You see, they were on a trip. They were traveling. And they were traveling over dangerous country with precious cargo that could have been stolen. They could have been robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Very common, the path that they were on in the culture that they were in. They had a plan. Now, some of you do travel without a plan, but very rarely. Think about this. Do you ever just get in the car and go, hey, I don't know where I'm going? But I'm just going to go right around. I used to do that when I was 15 and got my driver's license for the very first time. Man, I would end up at Sonic or Dairy Queen or somewhere playing, uh, you know, at the arcade, playing video games. Y'all have no idea what I just said. Anyway, <laughs> rarely in life do you just get in the car and not know where you're going. When you travel, now some of you, when you get there, if you're wired like me and God has wired me this way, I like to go on a vacation and not know what we're going to do when we get on vacation. And don't give me your rigid schedule. Don't give me your timeline. Don't make me, make me wake up too early and go to the museums, okay? I'm on vacation. But for most of us, when we travel 99.9% of the time, I'm hazarding a guess, we know where we're going. And these men were traveling, and they had a goal. They had a destination. They had a plan, and they had a purpose. Where is he? We've traveled to see him, and not just to see him, we've traveled to give. This is a God who gives. At the very heart of the Christmas story is a picture of God. And what can happen to us when we give as an act of worship to him. And so they gave 
intentionally. Churches like ours are able to bring life and give life because of people who have an intentional plan of giving. Most people who attend church do not. These guys had a plan. Intentional giving is close to the heart of God and one of the most beautiful ways that you and I can worship. There is a writer, uh, Adam Grant, this is from Secular Research, and he, he talks about the beauty of intentionally giving, of saying, of declaring, I want to be a giver in this world. And this um, writer coined this two-word phrase. He talks about in this study, Adam Grant, let's say that out loud, okay? Reciprocity styles. Okay, he talks about our, uh, does research on our motivations to give and the effects that our giving does. This is not religious stuff, okay? This is just good secular human psychology, behavior, cognitive analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And he talks about our reciprocity style. There are three kinds of people this research shows. There are givers and takers and matchers. A giver, as the name would imply, lives with the question, consciously or self-consciously, If I don't give, who else will? They're looking to give. That's their pinch it. That's their motivation. That's the the question, the heartbeat for givers. Takers ask the question, if I don't take care of myself, who else will? And a matcher, they want things to be fair and balanced. They're sort of the Fox News, but actually fair and balanced. But matchers, they keep score. Here's what matchers do. Matchers keep score. Matchers know who's giving and they know who's taken and they know when someone's been given, they should be given back. And when someone's taken, they should be punished. And matchers are scorekeepers. And in this credible, prestigious, secular survey survey revealing the motivations and effects of giving and generosity on people, who do you think they concluded are the happiest, most productive people, the people that inspire other people to be around them? Any guesses? the givers. It correlates with what Christ taught. Don't you love that? I tell you often, I follow Jesus because he's the only person who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. And it's substantive and it's credible and it happened and I'm all in. But I also love Jesus because of his teachings. He gets it right every time and he taught us some really important things about giving. And here we see intentional givers, givers, takers, and matchers. And those who say, I have a plan. I want on this journey, I want to see him. I want to give to him. I want my life to be about that. They're more joyful and more productive and more fruitful. I promise you it's true. The second trait of giving that we learn worship as an act of giving is not just uh, intentionally giving, but giving with extravagance, extravagantly giving. In verse 11, it says that they brought gold and myrrh and frankincense. I heard a preacher story one time of a few kids, like they were third graders and they had practiced and rehearsed for the nativity scene. And these three boys played the wise men and the first one came and again, he practiced and rehearsed and he said aloud, I bring you gold. And the second one approached the baby Jesus and said, I bring you myrrh. And the third one approached and said, Frank sent this. So what is... What are these odd phrases, okay? We passed the plate today. Hopefully nobody gave myrrh or frankincense. Uh, Maybe some gold, we're hoping. But what is this? Frankincense is 
it is um, re- resin. It, it derives from resin from a tree, and it has therapeutic effects. I've joked before about essential oils from this platform. I got lots of nasty emails from you, but uh, so, so I'm, I'm wrong, okay? So in the Bible, there are some, some oils. Myrrh is that way, and these, uh, these elements came from trees found only on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. In other words, they were hard to get. Some scholars, I, I, well, until recently, I didn't know this when I was doing nativity scenes and I was had lines in children's plays when I was little, but irrespective of the gold, the myrrh, and the frankincense that relieved pain, aided digestion, health, and healing, that healed wounds, that this was of rare and such great value irrespective of the gold, that these two alone, when given to Jesus, they probably were worth more than what Jesus made in his entire life. What an extravagant gift of worship. And remember, as I mentioned earlier, they traveled across dangerous country with precious cargo at great risk. And giving, and especially extravagant giving, always involves risk, adventure, and cost. And what I love about Jesus, if anybody's nervous at this point, what I love about Jesus is this. Jesus taught us that, in his own words, that extravagance is not about worth, the dollar amount, it's about cost. It's about what does it cost you when you give. Remember the great famous story, just like Jesus, he tells stories and they become famous, transcend all cultures, spaces, and times. And Jesus tells a story about a widow and her might and just dropping in a couple of those in a bucket. But because she gave all, it cost her more. She was the one praised, not those who were giving larger amounts, what we would call extravagant, to be seen by other people. Remember, giving is an act of worship. And an extravagant act of worship. A third way, not just intentionally giving or extravagantly giving, is they gave collectively. The verses that we read, that you read aloud with me, says multiple times, they, they, and they. It was done together. I believe, and I want to keep this in front of you often, that as a pastor, we really are better together always. When some of you will talk to me about your woes When you'll talk to me about something that has knocked you down and hit you hard, oftentimes in the wake of that, you will, in telling me your story, we'll talk about how you've been alone, how you've pulled away, you haven't been here, you didn't sign up for a group, you didn't get in a circle, you're not in the row as regular, you're not part of the body. And you're aiding and abetting the enemy's work in your life. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And we are better together. You should be in a circle. You should be in a group and with friends opening up your life at its hardest moments. We are better together. I was reading this week about something, a new social phenomenon. It really is just that. It's called giving circles. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's something fun to Google later, not during the sermon. But uh, these giving circles are popping up everywhere. And you, uh, just like the world today, it's kind of tribal. So they're women's giving circles. They're giving circles for uh, this ethnicity or that ethnicity. Uh, giving to causes that are important to people based on uh, their skin color, their race, their ethnicity, their their gender, their cause, or whatever. The idea, as you can imagine, is let's go online, let's meet people that we don't know, and let's pool our resources together for greater impact. And what I love about this is what is true here, this thought here that I want to drop with you today. Community sparks a kind of generosity that would not happen otherwise. Do you believe that? 
Sometimes I believe that when God begins a work, he points to a man or he points to a woman and says, I want you, I want your heart to be broken over this and I want you to go and I want you to start this. And I'm going to put people around you because following Jesus is the ultimate team sport. So there is an individual that will start something, but people gather. And I believe that's the power of community. You guys know that our, the mission of our church flows from Galatians 5, 6b. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. We want people to find faith. We want your faith to grow. We don't want you to lose your faith or leave your faith. It's why we preach the way we do sometimes and teach and learn. And while we do some of the sermon series that we do, we, we want to have a, a high view of the Bible, but also engage with our culture as well. We want you to find faith and grow in the faith and express it in love and we have three values underneath that mission statement gospel enjoyment this is good news intentional community that there's that word again get in a circle and do life together and then prayerful mission god what are you calling us to do next whose heart are you breaking what should we go to right now it's red door jackson it's reclaim project it's some of these ministries right here uh, it's the gym behind us it's the future of what we believe god is doing in our church prayerful mission but in intentional community we are called to help each other get better some of you know what hebrews 10 says when it talks about the baby jesus who became the man jesus who gave his life for all and it says that one sacrifice forever he sat down at the right hand of God but he tells us to follow him and to follow him we stimulate one another to love and good deeds we're better in community and what these giving circles are doing now the church has been doing from the beginning I want to submit to you today that the church is God's idea of the original giving circle and when you give, like these giving circles online, I'll take my gift and we'll match it with your gift and we'll get your gift and your gift and your gift and we are stronger. It's, it's giving that's magnified. So, not just intentional giving or giving extravagantly or collectively, but the last one really is my favorite. It's giving joyfully. Verse 10, I bet you didn't miss this when we originally read it. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed they couldn't contain it scripture would teach the church at Corinth that God doesn't want us to give reluctantly oops because we sometimes do that he doesn't want us to give reluctantly or under compulsion nobody can make you give y'all know that right I can't make you give everybody relax don't give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver that's what he loved i was reading a few years ago about a church where at offering time almost every sunday they would start dancing and they would sing at the offering time, and they would dance down the aisles everyone would dance down the aisles i think it was mandatory you dance down the aisle and give your offering what a great idea i'm best i'm betting they were not a presbyterian church probably not an episcopal church probably not fondren church but think about that. Saying, hey God, you've given to me and I want to give back. So in this story, we see this joyful giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Worship, in the Bible, worship always involves giving. And I want to submit something to you as we round toward third and this is important. Stay with me for a second and lower your defenses. I just want to preach this for a moment and then you go later and tell me if you believe it. 
But be open to this idea because I am passionate about it. Here's the idea. Systematic giving to an outward-facing church is your best financial investment. I believe that because of Isaiah, the prophet, who in the 58th chapter talked about prayer and fasting and talks about Isaiah 57, 12, I'm sorry, but talks about your people will be rebuilders of ancient ruins and repairers of, of, or, or, or that you will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of the broken walls and restorers of the streets of dwelling. And on Thursday, when I stood in our breezeway room, I stood in a corner. I had just offered a welcome to about 200 people in our community, black and white and other people. And you could feel, maybe a few of you were there, it was palpable in the room that the church is in a new era in the state of Mississippi. Now I'm talking to you. And in that room, I kind of, my mind floated. I welcomed everybody there. And there were people starting nonprofits and things to help people, to do something about poverty, to do something about what's happening in Jackson. And I, uh, David Henderson, who grew up in this church, he's an, an elder at Pine Lake Church. David was in the room and through tears, David said, man, I live in the suburbs, but this, being involved in the Jackson Leadership Foundation, it's got me back in the city. And there were a group of 200 probably plus people Men and women, black and white. And there were some leaders. There were some legends. John Perkins was in the house. And me. <laughs> Room full, star-studded. And I offered a welcome. Because, you know, it's our church house. And they asked me to. And I, I told those. I said, hey, I've got two very quick words before my prayer. The, some of you are starting something and it's hard. I want to say to you, I want to give you a word from the word. Do not despise small beginnings. And some of you have been at it and it's getting hard. I want to give you a word from the word. Do not grow weary in doing good. And man, people spoke. And by the time Dr. John Perkins got up there, man, it was real. And he said, this could be a moment. And I thought in that room of this summer in May when about 40 of you showed up, you just responded to a text that I sent and you showed up with sledgehammers and you knocked down walls so we could have spaces like that and saved us a few thousand dollars. And I think about the potential of what lies in this place. And I had multiple people coming up saying, what's your heart for the city? How can we work together? Hey, you got any space that we could operate out of? And I don't know the future. I'm making Nick Crawford really nervous right now, our executive pastor. I don't know the future, but I know we're not here for ourselves. And I know as beautiful as these little children are, God love them, especially if they're your own and your grandchildren. I ain't gonna mess with you grand grandparents. <laughs> but we exist not just for them, but for those who are not here yet. You see, so when you give, let me tell you what you're doing. When you give to your local church, God's original giving circle, here's what you're doing. I don't know anybody in the house. That, I don't know what you give. I don't know who gives. Nick knows and he tells me, but no, I'm kidding. I don't. That's not true. It's not true if he's here. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I don't know anybody in the house that gives 20%, but you know who does? Fondren Church. So when someone calls us and says, man, I am at, I'm, I'm at my end. I need counseling. Can you help us? You know what we say a lot of times? Yes. And we send them to our partner at Cornerstone and they get help. You know, God's given you a soul. He's given you a mind. And you know that souls and minds, we're not emotionally, mentally, mentally healthy, a lot of us. And we want to be a church that could minister to people better than we do. Not less, more. Some of you, like you want, you want more. We want more stuff, don't we? We want more wins, some of you just fired a coach, because not because he won too much. 
right? You want more wins. I want more. I want to see God do exceedingly more. And I want to do more than 20% one day. But I believe that systematic giving to an outward-facing church is your best financial investment. And here, I want to close with a couple of thoughts. When you give to the church, there is rescue. I'd be emotional wreck if I read to you some of the things I've gotten over the last couple of years. I thought about it today. I don't have time. But I know there was a family who wrote to me recently and said, we would not be together without the influence of this local church. And this was somebody who came to us for marriage counseling. We don't often do this, and now we've just diminished our numbers of those we'll counsel. But we told them, don't get married. You are fundamentally not compatible, and you don't have the skill set to get married. And we walked with them, and people in their Fondren Church small group were with them and gave them tough love and loved on them and spoke the truth and demonstrated grace. And this person, one of them in particular, made a courageous decision as this church walked with them. And they've moved on. They moved to Nashville. Why does everybody move to Nashville? (laughs) And he wrote to me and said, let me tell you about what God did through your church. And there was a literal rescue. And when I got that Christmas card yesterday and saw those little ones, I'm proud of a church and proud of those of you who already do Invest in your local church. And a few times a year like today, I'll just take a little stab to encourage some of you who are afraid to give or won't give. I want to invite you in because the impact, y'all, would be unbelievable. There's rescue, but there's also prevention. I cannot tell you, I can't tell you, I can tell you how many children hard places has rescued in Cambodia from human trafficking. I can tell you what it's like to be on the board of a new organization called Mississippians Against Human Trafficking and the work that's already begun in our state. Emily Harden could come up here and she will soon and tell you stories about Red Door Jackson and children that are being rescued and loved. But I cannot tell you how many children weren't taken out of their homes to begin with because mom and dad stayed away from drugs and alcohol, didn't have an affair, and stuck together through the hard times because of the influence of a local church. We have 11 staff to invest in people. Some people are like, well, I can't believe we pay all these staff. These are people investing in people. And we invest in children And we invest in students and we call you into intentional community. Who knows only God what's being prevented when we walk in grace and truth and love together. So I am saying to you that in the Bible, worship always involves giving. And at the heart of the Christmas story are these men who traveled to give. And they gave intentionally. They gave extravagantly. They gave collectively. They gave joyfully. What would happen if more of us in this room would join together and say, let's be that. Let's be a giving circle like we've never been before. At Christmas, this Yahweh God this God of love, and love always gives, he gave a gift that he only had one of. It was costly. And it was sacrificial. And it changed the world. Good news of great joy for all the people.
Would you pray with me? Father, I feel we're on a precipice of not just being a church in the city and for the city, but a church that would look more like the city. And Lord, we won't be a visionary organization without visionaries. We won't be relational without people of relationship. We, we won't be prayerful without people who pray. We won't be generous without people who move away from fear and greed, but especially fear, and say, I want to trust you. And Jesus, the baby Jesus who received this treasure, would become the man Jesus who taught every human heart where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. And God, I pray for our fear and our cowardice. Lord, I know some who, until a medical bill, until a job loss, until a, a bonus that they thought they were getting and found out they weren't getting to a company who told them we're not going to pay anybody this month. And all of a sudden, we pray. All of a sudden, we say, Lord, we want you to be involved in our financial lives. Yet we haven't invited you into our financial life. And you want us to give. And you want us to give off the top. You want us to make it a priority. So move in our hearts, God. Move in this place. Among our leaders. And comfort people, anybody offended today, let them know that if they choose not to, we will still be here for them. And nobody has to pay anything. Nobody has to tip their server. Elevate us to realize this is worship. And it's responding to a God who's given to us. And you won't have all of us, God. I know it. You won't have all of us unless we give you access to our financial lives and help us in this. These children demonstrated that there's a future here. And Lord, I want to call you into it to be central to it. And help us to learn that our generosity, you getting into our bank accounts and our checkbooks, is you getting into our hearts and our fears. To those who've never given, never systematically given intentionally, I pray that you move them. And those who've given, those who say, ah, you got my tithe, you always get my tithe. Lord, move us to greater levels of faith and risk and cost and adventure. And oh, what a joy. And Jesus, I pray, amen. Would you stand today? We're going to sing one quick song. The altar is open. We are here. If we could pray for you, you come today.